Today's text comes from John 3, verses 1 through 18. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, friends. Good morning. How are we today? I for oh hi. <laughs> never got my water. Hopefully I won't need it. <clears throat> um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you, um, as Amber said this morning, you're a God of presence. You're a God who chooses to dwell with His people. So Lord, we ask that in your kindness and in your mercy that you would dwell with us this morning in these next minutes and hours um, as we seek your face. Lord, would you make us different from the Pharisees, God? Would we not be blind fools, but would we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand? God, you are you're the God who turned a meager offering of a couple of fish and some loaves of bread into a meal for thousands. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take this meager offering this morning and make it useful for your kingdom, bless us, and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've been really enjoying this series. I don't know, I don't know about anyone else. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you for bringing my water. That was really nice, whoever did that. Um, I've really been enjoying this series. Uh, I've been, I follow this author and speaker. Her name is Annie F. Downs. Does anyone know Annie? For the, oh, great. For the past couple of years, Annie has been reading the Gospels in a month every single month of the year. So it turns out that if you read three chapters a day, <clears throat> you can get through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every single month. And so I tried joining her a couple of times in 2020, a couple of times in 2021. Top of 22, I said, new year, new Jackie, I'm going to start again. Um, and so I did. I did it for January. I'm a little bit behind for February, but I think I have a good excuse for that. Um, but it is, it's really interesting to spend every day with Jesus. And I think as I was reading through this most recent time, knowing that I was going to talk with you all today, I, what was leaping off the page for me was this idea of Jesus as rabbi. He is a brilliant teacher of the law. People who have been teaching the law their entire lives are confounded by him. They're confounded by the things that he says. And I found myself with this sense of pride of like, oh, I know him. I know him. That's Jesus. He's my savior. I know him. Um, and it was a really uh, delightful feeling, and it was a really delightful way to sort of enter into study uh, for, for today. Um, so I do want us to talk about Jesus as rabbi. And I also want to tell you just some good resources if you're interested. I think it's really helpful to spend some extended time meditating on the Gospels because they are the most direct contact that we have with Jesus. Um, and so in my preparations, I um, listened to a lot of episodes of the Bema podcast. I don't know if anyone's ever listened to that. B-E-M-A, Bema podcast. It's very good. Um, and I listened to some sermons uh, by Tim Mackey on his podcast, uh, Exploring My Strange Bible. He does a sermon series on Matthew, which is very, very helpful. Um, and actually, he does one of my favorite sermons on that podcast is called Love is Not a Black Hole. I just can't recommend it enough. It's, um, it's a meditation on what Paul says to the Corinthians about love. So Jesus is rabbi. Um, one of the things that Jesus says to Nicodemus is that he, he says we are testifying to what we have seen. We're, we're talking about what we know. So he's invoking the Trinity. He's saying, we have a view that is different from yours. We have a view um, that comes from a complete knowledge of what has happened in the history of God and human beings over the course of time. And over that course of time, Jesus developed what is called a yoke, um, a rabbi's Yoke was how he was reading scripture, how he was, the lens that he was using to interpret the laws of God. And so when Jesus talks about his yoke being easy and his burden being light, he's saying, you can come underneath my yoke, you can learn from me, and it's going to be much better for you than what the Pharisees are telling you to do. 
Um, and of course, we know what Jesus' yoke is, and we're going to get into it later, but his was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But before we get to this specific conversation, I thought it might be helpful to take a little trip um, through the Old Testament. Um, I've called it an Old Testament survey, but that's like really lofty. We're just going to look at some of the, the covenants, some of the interactions that God had with human beings over the course of time so that we can really understand um, how Jesus developed his yoke and what he is ultimately trying to do in his time here on earth. Um, so in the beginning, God created the entire world. We are told that he formed Adam from the dust and breathed into him, and Adam became a living soul. And when he is finished with his last creation, man and woman, he gives them a charge. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. I actually just want to say that I may be overcorrected with the slides here. Last time, I felt like I didn't have enough. I definitely went too far in the other direction, so I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm sorry, Bo. Um, Bo's back there dealing with it. He's going to do a great job, but I'm just going to confess that. Um, so God, in this overflow of love and creativity, creates the world and creates human beings to share it with him. And this is the fullness of God's plan for his creation, to have this world, to share rule of it with the, the human beings that he has created and that he loves and wants to be with. And then we have the fall. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and they disobey God. And the next thing we see is God pronouncing these curses. Um, he curses Adam. He curses Eve. Um, and he also curses the serpent. But contained in the curse against the serpent is a rescue plan. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we have the fall. We have some inkling of what the rescue plan will be. Eve's offspring will ultimately defeat evil and be wounded in the process. But as the apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, what happened from that time on is that death reigned. Death reigned. And so death is reigning, um, and Cain kills Abel in the first recorded murder in the Bible. Um, but there are still glimmers of hope. The, the scripture tells us that Adam had another son. He had Seth. Seth had Enosh. And it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So in the midst of chaos and evil and death reigning, there is still hope. People are still calling on the name of God. Um, but things continue to devolve. And it gets so bad that God actually regrets having made human beings. And then we get to the time of Noah, and we see the Lord in Genesis chapter 6 saying this. Um, and I've read this a bunch of times, and it's always hard every single time that I read it, so I'm just going to say that to you knowing that some things may come up. The Lord saw 
how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But again, the glimmers of hope, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and so it says that God blessed Noah and his son. So they, the flood comes, Noah and his family are in the ark, everyone else, everything else is destroyed. And then it says that God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, just like he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And there's also a really curious part of his conversation with Noah here where he says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God created mankind. So there is this stance that God is making very clear here that he is against violence. Um, and God makes a sign between him and Noah that this is the promise, that this promise is good for all time, and that sign is a rainbow. God says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. And if you read the text, God actually repeats himself quite a lot in this passage. He says, never again, never again, never again will I do this. He is very passionate and fervent in his promise to Noah in the text. And we see this rainbow come up again. In John's revelation at the end of the Bible, the angel tells him to come up here, and he's suddenly in the throne room of heaven. And John writes, at once I was in the spirit, and there, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So God has not only remembered his promise, but he has made it a permanent fixture in his throne room. Whatever happens, whatever goes wrong with humanity, our God has always promised to remember mercy, and that is the sign of the rainbow. And then we get to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah are old. They don't have any kids. God says, leave everything you know. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The text says that Abraham believed God and that God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob, who is also known as Israel, and the Israelite nation becomes to, comes to be, and those, are, of course, become the Jewish people. They are enslaved by Pharaoh. They are delivered by Moses through the waters of the Red Sea. God makes another covenant. He says, follow my law, and I will bless you. He gives them the Ten Commandments, the 613 commands of Torah, and says, if you follow this, you will be blessed. And things go really poorly. 
Um, the Israelites want to be like other nations. They want a king. They get a king, Saul. He's not great. Um, they get David. David seems like he's doing fine for a, ro- a while. He gets into some trouble with some adultery and some murder. Um, and even in the midst of that, God is still making promises. He's saying, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David's son Solomon comes to reign. Um, He builds a temple for God. He asks God for wisdom. God gives him so much more. He gains wealth and fame. He marries a number of wives, many of them who are not part of the Israelite nation, and he begins to become tolerant of idol worship. He also shows everyone all of the wealth that the Israelites have, which was not a good plan. It makes them a target. Uh, Solomon dies. There's a split in the kingdom. And while those, those kings were kind of a mixed bag, most of them continued to tolerate idol worship. And throughout this period, the prophets are warning them. They are saying, this is not going to go well for you. Um, But still they are giving them hope. They are saying God is married to you. He will not break his covenant. He's going to turn the valley of dry bones into an army. He's going to take away the stony heart and give you hearts of flesh. He's going to write his word on your heart. Um, But they are not listening. And they're scattering and there's captivity. And then here comes Caesar and the Roman occupation And this is where we meet our two rabbis. So Nicodemus is a member of the group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law, and they actually laid the foundation for the rabbinic system that exists in modern-day Judaism. Uh, They were in charge of the local synagogue, so they were very involved in people's day-to-day lives. Um, They believed in the oral tradition. They passed it down. Um, We've talked about the fence that was built around Torah, the the sets of rules that were designed to keep people from from coming close to breaking the 613 commands. The Pharisees would have been responsible for building that fence. Um, We are told that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council Uh, uh, called the Sanhedrin. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up the two halves of the Sanhedrin. They were kind of like the Supreme Court of that time. They would have been responsible for deciding disputes that arose among the Jewish nation. The Pharisees were devoted to God's law. They believed that if the Jewish people could get it together If they could follow the law, if they could have strict adherence to the law, then Messiah would come. That is what they believed. And so for them, sinners were a big problem because they were the ones that were keeping Messiah, and they were kind of lost. Um, And then Jesus comes, and he starts to retell the story of humanity. Jesus is... The new Adam, he is the one sent to do what Adam and other human beings could not do, which is obey God and obey the law. Um, He was tested in the wilderness for 40 days, similar to the Israelites who are wandering in the desert for 40 years. He overcame every temptation. He's fulfilling the promises that we see made to Abraham and to David 
Um, He was baptized, as we looked at last week or a couple of weeks ago, born of water to fulfill all righteousness, and he received the Holy Spirit. It landed on him. He received the Father's affirmation. The clouds opened up, um, and he stands up in the synagogue, which is the seat of power of the Pharisees, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news, good news to the poor, setting the prisoners free, declaring the great day of the Lord. And he begins to teach people how to obey the covenant law. He starts to interpret Torah as someone with authority. Um, A good example of this is, is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Um, and so he's saying it's, murder is like the low bar. Like it's, it's the least that you can do not to murder some, someone. You actually have to not hate them. You have to stop yourself from hating them. Um, He also says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so in these teachings, Jesus is effectively, if I can use a legal term, he's overturning precedent. There's all this precedent about how you interpret the law all this, all this precedent about what the 613 commands of Torah really mean. And Jesus is saying, not a, none of that, but this. Um, and we talked about this earlier. There's a scholar who asks him, what is your yoke? And Jesus tells him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, everything, all of the law, all of the prophets hang on just those two. And so Jesus is stating his yoke. He is saying it is not about the rules. It is about the state of your heart. Is your heart turned toward God? Is your heart turned toward your neighbor? And this was Jesus's central problem with the Pharisees. Their yoke was too heavy. He says in Matthew, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders Later, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so the Pharisees' yoke, that they, the fence that they had placed around Torah was too much for anyone to bear. They had forgotten that the person next to them was more sacred than the text. And so Jesus, as rabbi, is instructing them on how to undo that, and he's reframing the purpose and the intent of God's law. Um, And it's important to note, actually, that his disciples were not immune to this. They were also a product of the, the yoke of the Pharisees, that, that was what they had been brought up under. That was what they knew and they understood. There's this interesting passage where Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They stop in a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans are like, no, we don't want you here because you're going to Jerusalem. And James and John are like, hey, should we just like call down fire and destroy them? And Jesus is like, no, guys, that's not, 
That's not what we're here for. That's not what we're doing right now. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually, James and John at some point even get their mother involved. Their mother comes to Jesus and she's like, hey, can you let my son sit at your right hand and your left hand? And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking. This is not, this is not that kind of thing. We're not here to conquer We're not here to kill people and overturn governments. My kingdom is not of this world. But even his disciples didn't really understand that. They had been brought up under this pharisaical yoke. And Jesus spends a lot of his time on earth really just reframing everything. He has to break their expectations. And so... We see the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, and in John's chronology, this is coming right after the incident where Jesus flips the, the tables in the temple courts and makes the whip of cords. Um, so it's a very curious time for someone in Nicodemus's position to be visiting Jesus, who is essentially at this point a problem. Um, and there are a lot of theories about why Nicodemus comes and how he comes, um, some, one of my favorites is that um, it would have been the same night as Passover, and so the Jewish people have this tradition of what's called the night of watching, because if death is going to pass by you, you want to make sure that that actually happens. And so it was tradition for them to stay up, and they might have been continuing to drink wine throughout the night. And so this one commentator actually suggested that Jesus and Nicodemus might have been a little bit in their cups at the point of having this conversation. Um, I'm not saying that's true. I just thought it was really interesting. Um, So we're going to look, we're going to take an extended look at this conversation and talk about what it means. Um, It's going to be a familiar passage to a lot of us. And one of the experiences I have a lot of the time when I'm reading um, the scriptures, particularly the Gospels, is that I feel like Jesus is really tough on the Pharisees. I feel like he's maybe a little bit snarky with them, and it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, I, I, I wish you could have said that in a nicer way, or I wish you could have used a different tone. Um, but I decided to sort of take off that lens and put on the lens Um, that scripture gives me, which is John says very clearly, Jesus is coming with grace and truth. And so I decided to look back and see, well, where's, where's grace and where's truth? And a part of me really believes that Jesus was hardest on the Pharisees because they were the closest to the kingdom of God. They had the law They studied it with their entire lives. They were teaching it to the Jewish people. They were wanting them to follow it so that Messiah would come. Um, But somehow they were still missing it. They had blinders on. And so Jesus' words to them, yes, they are really harsh, but I also think he's just trying to wake them up. Um, I see in this conversation now, more of a loving father's discipline. I see urgency. I see um, fervor, a real desire for his children to know him and to see him. And so I'd like us to 
think about that as we look a little bit more closely at their exchange. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Nicodemus has spent his entire life poring over God's word, interpreting it, wringing the meaning from every single verse, and here is the word become flesh, and he cannot see it. And Jesus is looking to his eyes, and he's saying, it's me, I'm here why can't you see that it's me? There is genuine frustration and pity. And Jesus responds with grace. He gives Nicodemus one of the most full explanations of the gospel that we see in scripture coming directly from him. And let's look at the gospel according to Jesus. Though oh, you are really good at this. Um, Jesus said, we speak of what we know. Sorry. He says, to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and spirit. And so here he is invoking John's ministry, the requirement of repenting and being baptized. Um, and he's saying, you also have to receive the spirit. You have to receive the spirit uh, from above. Jesus says, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. Again, he's using plural pronouns here. He's invoking his union with God. He's saying, you can't see what I see. This is my long view of history, and you are wrong about the things that you have assumed. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. And he is admitting here his deity. He's saying, I came from heaven. I'm going back there. And he says, just as well known to Nicodemus as a teacher of the law. And so Jesus is telling him what's going to happen. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on the cross, and everyone will need to look to him for their salvation. 
And Jesus takes it one step further. He makes it even more plain. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus is giving Nicodemus his yoke. He's telling him how to interpret the scriptures that he's been promised to Abraham was for all nations. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. He said that everyone would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. He's explaining to Nicodemus that the law was never intended to save you. It was to show that you needed saving. Messiah isn't coming because you're perfect. He's coming because he loves you. Jesus is using this phrase, born again, and so I thought it would be a good idea to sort of look at what it actually means. The Greek, and I'm actually going to attempt to say it, is geneo anathan. And geneo is a word that is actually referring to physical birth. Jesus is invoking this image on purpose. Thank you. Um, and anathan is translated as again here and in many translations, but a more helpful description of anathan is that it means from above or from the top. And so I thought it would be helpful if we looked to see how John uses it and given to you from above. He's using anothen there. Later on in the chapter, when the soldiers are dividing his garment, it says his garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. A version of the Gospels that I'm reading now, this translation, this translator Sarah Rudin renders chapter 3, verse 3, as Jesus answered by saying to him, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born anew, taking it straight from the top, he can't see the kingdom of God. In verse 7, she renders it as, Don't be bewildered that I say to you, all of you people must be born anew, taking it straight from the top. So in this conversation, which is the rebirth of human beings, rebirth into a people who can obey, rebirth into a people who understand how to love him and to love those who are created in his image. And Jesus basically reenacts the creation story uh, with his disciples. It says that he rises from the dead, he goes to see his friends, he opens their locked door where they are, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is how we are reborn, it's how we become new, and Holy Spirit is how we live the life that God intended, life with him. Charles Martin, in his book, They Turn the World Upside Down, describes it like this. In Genesis, we see the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That was the old man, the one Jesus came to ransom. When Jesus walked into the room, he breathed new life into his own. Just as he breathed life into Adam in the old creation, he now breathes life into his own 
to make the new creation. In my mind, this marks the transition, the turning of the page from the old covenant to the new. This is Jesus, the life giver, giving life to our mortal bodies, breathing redeemed, justified, sanctified breath into the lungs of everyone who believes. We see this signified when on the cross the soldier pierced Jesus' side and blood and water flowed. In that moment, Jesus birthed the new man or new Adam. Here in this room and in this moment, Jesus was giving life into the new creation with his very own breath. They were born again. God is really committed to the do-over. He reestablishes his covenant with human beings over and over and over and ultimately comes down himself to fulfill our side of the bargain. That's the gospel. And we get to start again with our creator and our savior breathing new life into us, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Um, The conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus is interesting because we don't ever really get to see why Nicodemus is there. He makes his opening salvo. He's like, you're great, you're awesome, you must be from God. And Jesus just cuts him off right there, and he says, you have to be born again. And it's not really clear from Scripture whether that intervention is successful, but we do see Nicodemus a couple of more times. There's one instance, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are really hot with Jesus at this point, and they want to arrest him. And they tell the temple guards to arrest him. The temple guards don't arrest him, and they come back and they say, why were we supposed to do that again? What did he do? And they're really upset. And Nicodemus says, are we going to condemn this man without hearing him first? So Nicodemus was obviously affected by what he had heard Jesus say. He's defending him in public. And by the way, was very ridiculed by his fellow Pharisees. They're like, oh, are you from Galilee too? Check the scriptures. No prophet is coming from Galilee. The next time we see Nicodemus... It's after Jesus has died on the cross, and he is helping Joseph of Arimathea bury him. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Jesus, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. 75 pounds. I read that, and I was like, "That, that seems like too much. And it was. Normal burials around that time would have required one to five pounds of spices. And so Nicodemus wasn't just there to provide something for burial. He was making an offering to a man that he had come to regard as king. 
So it is my contention that he believed what Jesus told him. He believed that he needed to start again. He even went so far as to take um, a page from the beginning of Jesus' life where he's a toddler and, and the wise men come and they bring him myrrh and essential oils and gifts, and he does it himself. He's starting over. He's taking it from the top. He wants to be born again. And so my question for us this morning and what I want us to spend some time reflecting on as we get ready to take communion and worship is, what are we going to offer our king? Um, I do not think being born again is a one-time thing. I think it is a thing that continues to happen throughout your life. Um, I think there are areas of our lives that we are always holding on to things. We're always resisting, submitting to the yoke of our rabbi. Um, the other day I was at work and I was having a tough day for no reason, for no apparent reason at all. I'm standing in front of the copier, I'm, I'm scanning some documents for one of my clients, and I just felt anxious and I felt sad and it felt crippling in the moment. And so I started to do a breath prayer, which I've actually never done before, but it felt so necessary in the moment. And so I would inhale, I can do all things, exhale through Christ who strengthens me. And I sat there and I breathed in and out. And my mind and my body got quiet enough for me to tap into what was actually happening for Holy Spirit to speak to me in that moment. And the truth is, is that I was feeling really discouraged about the work that I do, that it feels like evil is winning, that it feels like there's no justice to be had for the people that Jesus loved so much, and I had to submit that. I had to submit that to God and to say, I have forgotten this aspect of your character. I have forgotten the story that you are telling in the world, which is a story of redemption. A story where, yes, the servant is going to strike the heel of their Savior, but the Savior is going to ultimately defeat evil. And so my question for you today is, where do you need God to tell a different story? What is it in your life where you need to come under the yoke of your rabbi and have him remind you of God's purposes throughout his history with human beings to remind you that we are meant to be with our creator in a garden and to be at peace? I was thinking about the invitations today, and sometimes the invitations come before the sermon does, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, I know that many of us have different church backgrounds, um, but I do want to say that if you have spent time or 
were once part of a church where there was a pharisaical yoke that you felt burdened under? As a representative of the church, I want to say that I am sorry. I want to say that God knows who you are. He's always known who you are. Your identity is secure with him. And today is a great day to shake the dust off your feet. If you have been someone who is all about the rules, you think that doing everything right is what makes God loves you, I want to say there's grace for you. Messiah didn't come because you're good. He came because he's good and he loves you. So if there's a place in your life where you just need to start again, where you need to receive breath and life, then he's here. Holy Spirit is here. Your Savior is here. He loves you. He wants you. So I'm going to give us a minute to have a chat with our rabbi, and then we can take communion. God, I thank you that you are always near. You are a breath away that we don't have to search high and low to find you. You're not hiding. You want to be seen. You want to be known. You want to dwell with your creation so much that you sent your spirit to dwell. So Lord, I pray that you would be especially close to us in these next few moments. Just be with us.
show us your heart. Show us the story that you're telling. Show us where you need us to submit to the yoke of our rabbi. Show us your goodness. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name. Can we stand for the Lord's Supper? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, thank you for being with us. Thank you for this chance to remember you and to celebrate your victory on the cross that is good for all people for all time. It's good for today. It's good for yesterday. It's good for tomorrow. We are forgiven. And so we take the bread, your body broken for us. And we take the cup, your blood shed for us. Friends, let's take these next few moments to respond to what we've heard, to worship our Savior, who is truly worthy of every hallelujah. Let's worship him.